Who the Hell Is brings you our new Biography Bites, compact biographies of the world's greatest thinkers. Each biography is taken from the first section of one of our Who the Hell Is books. So once you've listened to this and had a taster of who the hell this great thinker is, why not find out what the hell they were on about? Our books are available at whothehellis.co.uk. Ludwig Wittgenstein is famous not only for the scope of his ambition, at one point he believed he had solved all the problems of philosophy, but also for his influence on the development of the subject, having played a foundational role in many of the 20th century's most significant philosophical movements. Wittgenstein is also notorious for his ambivalence about the subject itself, more likely to see philosophical thinking as a trap from which we must be freed, rather than a discipline to be promoted. The task of philosophy, he said, is to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle, and the real discovery would be the one that enables us to stop doing philosophy when we want to. But who was Wittgenstein the person behind the philosophy? Ludwig Wittgenstein was born in Vienna on 26th of April 1889, the youngest of eight children, five boys and three girls. His family was one of the richest in the country. His father, Karl, had made a fortune developing the Austro-Hungarian Empire's iron and steel industry and was regarded as a pillar of the community. The elder Wittgenstein hadn't always been so respectable, however. Karl ran away from home aged 11 and was expelled from school aged 17 after he wrote an essay denying the immortality of the soul. Shortly afterwards, he fled to New York, living on his wits and working as a bartender, teacher and itinerant musician. On his return to Vienna in 1867, though, he had risen rapidly from a humble technical draftsman to captain of industry, and by the time Ludwig was born, his father's wild years were in the distant past. The family was cultured as well as rich. Wittgenstein's mother, Leopoldine, was an accomplished musician who nurtured talent in her children, and Karl was an enthusiastic supporter of modernist painting and sculpture. Karl and Leopoldine's generous patronage of the arts included at-home musical evenings, attended by Mahler and Brahms. Ludwig's brother, Paul, became a noted concert pianist, for whom Ravel wrote a one-handed piano concerto after Paul lost an arm in the First World War. When Ludwig's sister Marguerite married in 1905, it was Klimt who painted her portrait. Homeschooled to the age of 14, Ludwig acquired significant musical talent and strong aesthetic opinions. Those who knew him later remarked on his uncannily accurate whistling, which was well up to performing Schubert with piano accompaniment. The family's respectable social status concealed uneasiness and the shadow of mental illness. Karl's struggle to overcome the straitjacket of parental expectation didn't prevent him imposing a similar rigidity of outlook on his own family and he had initially insisted that all his boys prepare for a life in business. Two elder brothers rebelled, but both had died by suicide before Ludwig reached adulthood. Hans, the eldest, drowned in Chesapeake Bay in 1903 after running away to America to start a life as a musician, and Rudolf, who had left for Berlin to seek work in the theatre, killed himself with cyanide in a bar the following year, in the midst of a crisis over his sexuality. A third brother, Kurt, took his own life at the end of the First World War, after his troops deserted. Within the same period, two of Ludwig's early intellectual inspirations, Otto Weininger and Ludwig Boltzmann, had also killed themselves, and some commentators talk of a cult of suicide in the intellectual atmosphere of early 20th century Vienna. Wittgenstein himself was often perceived by those around him as actively considering the same act of self-destruction, although it is clear that he committed early on never to go through with it, 
recognising an absolute duty to go on living. Unlike his older brothers, Ludwig was allowed to follow his inclinations towards practical problems, rather than take up the reins of the family business, a freedom partly due to his father's sudden resignation from all of the boards on which he served as an executive when Ludwig was nine. This may have resulted from a scandal involving allegations of insider trading. Whatever the reason, it left the family both rich and unencumbered. His sisters pursued a conventional but brilliant path through the intellectual culture of pre-war Vienna. But after a period of normal schooling at Linz, then Berlin, Wittgenstein travelled to Britain to study aeronautical engineering at the University of Manchester. Over his two and a half years at Manchester, Wittgenstein worked with characteristic vigour and originality, first on the design of kites, then on aeroplane engines, producing innovations in propeller design important enough to be patented in his name in 1911. His love of machinery remained strong. In later life he would relax with visits to view the steam engines in London's Science Museum. During this time Wittgenstein's fascination with the foundations of mathematics grew, eventually leading him to Cambridge and the philosopher Bertrand Russell, at that point the leading philosopher of mathematics in the English-speaking world. With characteristic directness, Wittgenstein simply arrived unannounced at Russell's rooms in Cambridge, demanding to talk about the philosophical problems which had been obsessing him. Russell reacted to Wittgenstein at first with bemused tolerance, referring to him, inaccurately, as my ferocious German in letters to his lover Ottilie Morel. His initial assessment was that Wittgenstein was obstinate and perverse, but I think not stupid. In those letters, Russell also recalls the demands on his time and patience made by Wittgenstein's habit of coming back to his rooms and arguing at him after the completion of Russell's lectures. In later recollection, he would claim that Wittgenstein would arrive every evening at midnight and pace up and down my room like a wild beast in agitated silence. Nevertheless, Russell quickly saw Wittgenstein's potential and acted to enable his enrolment in the university for a two-year course as an advanced student, beginning in February 1912. These two years would be crucial for Wittgenstein's philosophical development. After Cambridge, Wittgenstein travelled on holiday to Norway with his friend David Pinsent, whose diaries of the trip survive. These reveal a surprisingly prosaic day-to-day existence, with a lot of time dedicated to reading classic novels. They also offer a glimpse into the darker side of Wittgenstein's personality. Pinsent regards him as confessing that there had not been a day in which he had not at one time or another thought of suicide. Wittgenstein enjoyed the isolation of the place enough that he returned to live there in a hut built for him by local contractors, learning Norwegian and working on philosophy whenever his bleak temperament permitted. Wittgenstein's father had died early in 1913, leaving him the substantial fortune that had made such radical decisions possible. However, by the end of 1919, Wittgenstein would have given away almost all his fortune, transferring it to his surviving brother Paul and his sisters Helen and Hermine. It is unclear exactly why he did this, but in a letter from December that year, Bertrand Russell describes him as having become a mystic who is seriously contemplating becoming a monk. Already by the 1930s he was reliant on research grants from Cambridge, and by the end of his life he was speculating on how much longer his financial reserves would hold out. The pre-war period is also noteworthy for Wittgenstein's first romantic attachment. It is clear from Wittgenstein's later diary entries that he regarded himself as passionately devoted to Pinsent, and almost equally clear from Pinsent's diaries that Pinsent himself was unaware of the depth of Wittgenstein's feelings towards him. 
After Pinsent died in a plane crash in 1918, Wittgenstein dedicated his first book, The Tractatus, to his memory. Later, in a letter to Bertrand Russell in 1920, he wrote that he thought of Pinsent every day, and when he died, he took half my life away with him. Wittgenstein's love life has exercised an irresistible magnetism for biographers, a fact which would have horrified the man himself. At once scrupulously private and ferociously honest with himself, he kept sections of his diary in a simple alphabetical code. These entries record when he has felt sensuous or asexual, although it is not entirely clear whether he preferred one of these states to the other. Wittgenstein was prone to self-loathing, for example, writing to his friend Paul Engelman in May 1920 of his own baseness and rottenness, and some biographers have attributed this, in part, to conflicting feelings about his homosexuality, at a time when this was both illegal and taboo. However, this could be an overinterpretation. Wittgenstein was, in general, deeply uncomfortable in his own skin, obsessed with his moral failings as a human being, and painfully aware of a duty to self-improvement. This self-critical worldview is enough to account for his inner turmoil, without having to assume any further angst over his sexuality. And in fact, he went on after Pinson to form two committed and long-standing homosexual relationships. One with the mathematician Francis Skinner, which ended with Skinner's death from polio in 1941, and another from the late 1940s until Wittgenstein's own death, with Ben Richards, an undergraduate medical student. These, it seems, brought him a degree of stability, happiness and inner peace. Wittgenstein was on his customary summer holiday at the family estate near Vienna when the First World War broke out, leaving him unable to return to England as planned, and unexpectedly on the other side of a global conflict. Despite his fellow feeling for his friends and mentors in Cambridge, he volunteered almost immediately for the Austrian army, seemingly because of a belief that the proximity to danger would enable him to complete his development as a person. Perhaps the nearness of death will bring me the light of life, he said. At first he was assigned to man a searchlight on a ship, then to a dull administrative role at a repair depot, finally entering active service, at his own request, as a forward artillery observer on the Eastern Front. Here he served with such conspicuous bravery that he was decorated for courage under fire after taking charge of the rescue of four men who'd been buried by shell fire and ensuring their field gun was safely recovered from its now untenable forward position. Wittgenstein's notebooks from the time, which have been preserved, reveal disdain for the boorish nature of his fellow enlisted men. No enthusiasm, incredible rudeness, stupidity and wickedness, the stupidity, cheek and malice of these people know no bounds, he wrote. His journal entries record impatience with any except the most brutally dangerous assignments. However, they also confirm that he was using his time to consolidate the main points of his first book, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, commonly referred to as the Tractatus. He finished the manuscript for this on leave in Austria during 1918, returning to his new posting in Italy just in time to be captured and see out the last months of the war in an Italian POW camp. Wittgenstein seems genuinely to have believed, as he claimed in the book's introduction, that the Tractatus had solved all the problems of philosophy. His response was to retrain as a primary school teacher and seek employment in the most remote areas of Austria he could find. After a summer working as a monastery gardener while he awaited his first post, Wittgenstein secured a job in the small village of Trattenbach, where he was regarded first as a harmless eccentric, then with increasing suspicion as his irascibility became more apparent. This new career was cut short in 1926, 
after Wittgenstein lost his temper with a sickly 11-year-old boy in his school, striking him hard enough in the class that the boy collapsed and a doctor was called. Wittgenstein handed in his resignation shortly after, returning to his family in Vienna. The next three years are notable both for Wittgenstein's association with the so-called Vienna Circle of Philosophers and for his involvement with the design of his sister Marguerite's new house. Now home to part of the Bulgarian embassy in Vienna, it still features bespoke door handles and radiators designed by Wittgenstein. The same period in Vienna saw the beginning of another romantic attachment, this time to Marguerite Respinger, a wealthy, educated and well-connected Swiss woman with, it seems, absolutely no interest in philosophy at all. This was to last until 1931. Wittgenstein seemed very happy in the arrangement and made plans to marry her. Although the relationship had a physical dimension, his diaries described time spent kissing, which was, he wrote, very nice, Marguerite backed out when it became clear that Wittgenstein intended a platonic marriage with no children. She married another acquaintance in 1933. Wittgenstein had been gradually drawn back into philosophy while in Austria, both by his involvement with the Vienna Circle and by visits from Cambridge by the logician Frank Ramsey, who proved a sympathetic but effective critic of Wittgenstein's earlier views. Eventually he returned to Cambridge. By his own account, the sustained criticisms of Ramsey and the economist Piero Straffer had convinced him that there were serious errors in his previous complete solution to the problems of philosophy. The innovative way he developed his thought in response to these criticisms during these years is the main reason for his current fame. In 1939, a professorship fell vacant after G.E. Moore's retirement and Wittgenstein was duly elected. His influence at Cambridge had become so great in the preceding years that audiences at the Moral Sciences Club, the Cambridge Philosophy Debating Society, would jeer at the mention of any other philosopher. One significant cloud darkened the horizon during these years of lecturing, research and informal discussions in Cambridge. Wittgenstein's sisters remained in Vienna, as Hitler rose to power across the border, and after the Anschluss, Austria's annexation by Germany, in 1938, they faced real danger as the result of the family's Jewish ancestry, something it seems Wittgenstein himself may have been unaware of in early life. The family had been Christian since his grandfather's conversion a hundred years previously, and Wittgenstein and his siblings had been baptised as Catholics. Wittgenstein was forced to travel to Germany to negotiate his sister's status, as part of a barely concealed financial transaction with the Nazi party, involving the larger part of the family's surviving fortune. He also had to pull strings in Britain to acquire the naturalised British status that would protect him from seizure while in Germany, completing the deal barely a month before the outbreak of war. Although now too old for military service, he had turned 50 in the year the war broke out, Wittgenstein was desperate to play a useful practical role in Britain's war effort, Eventually, he found work as a hospital porter at Guy's Hospital in London. The next year, he moved to Newcastle as a research assistant to a project investigating physiological reactions to extreme bodily trauma. However, his leave of absence from Cambridge was not extended, and he was forced to return to the task of trying to prepare his recent work for publication. Although he was considered, at least at Cambridge, as the leading philosopher of his day, Wittgenstein had published nothing substantial since the Tractatus, and was generally hostile to any attempt to disseminate his new ideas in print. He'd been known on occasion even to object to students taking notes during his lectures. Nevertheless, he clearly aspired to publish again. He worked continuously, redrafting and reordering his remarks, and as early as 1938, 
he'd arranged for a version of his second major work, The Philosophical Investigations, to be typed up. This was eventually published, in English translation and in a greatly revised form, in 1953, two years after his death. Wittgenstein's return to Cambridge was unenthusiastic, and shortly after returning he took eight months' leave of absence to work on his book in Swansea, where his friend and fellow philosopher Rush Rees was teaching at the university. It was rare for Wittgenstein to find a professional philosopher he actively enjoyed talking to. While he could be generous with students, he'd come increasingly to see academic philosophy as a morally bankrupt and sterile environment. It was during this period that the poker incident occurred between him and Karl Popper. Eyewitness accounts of this event differ in the details, but even the mildest retelling does not paint Wittgenstein in a flattering light, suggesting a very short temper and a total inability to tolerate divergent philosophical points of view. Popper had visited Cambridge in October 1946 to read a paper, Are There Philosophical Problems? Popper thought there were. Wittgenstein, notoriously by this point, believed that there were no genuine problems, only confusions caused by misunderstanding the workings of language. The most dramatic account has Wittgenstein snatching a poker from the fire and brandishing it in Popper's face before storming out of the meeting. Wittgenstein's frustration with academia and conviction that he would work best in isolation from others, unusual among philosophers, finally led Wittgenstein to resign his professorship in 1947. From this point on, he did no further formal teaching or lecturing. In the later years of his life, Wittgenstein relied heavily on the hospitality of friends and former students, first in Ireland, where he sought solitude in a borrowed cottage on the west coast, then as a guest of Norman Malcolm, a member of the philosophy faculty at Cornell University in the USA, who'd fallen under Wittgenstein's spell while at Cambridge before the war. Wittgenstein's other hosts in this period were also stout supporters of his philosophy. Elizabeth Anscombe in Oxford and Georg Henrik von Wright in Cambridge. These two later became his literary executors, making crucial decisions about the arrangement of his work that still influence how he's understood today. Although still preoccupied with philosophical problems, especially the relationship between knowledge and certainty, Wittgenstein suffered from deteriorating health. He was eventually diagnosed with inoperable prostate cancer. Nevertheless, he remained able to travel, visiting Vienna again and taking a brief holiday in Norway in 1950, and he continued to write when able. He was still recording remarks for the work later published in 1969 as On Certainty, on the day before his final loss of consciousness. Wittgenstein died on 29th of April 1951, age 62, at the house of his doctor, Edward Bevan, in Cambridge. His last words the day before to Bevan's wife were, Tell them I've had a wonderful life. So how important a philosopher is Wittgenstein? His reputation is formidable, both among academics and within wider society. A poll of professional philosophers in the USA in 1999 ranked the philosophical investigations as the most important philosophical work of that century, with the Tractatus coming in at fourth place. However, his reputation in popular culture is, perhaps unfairly, built around the idea that his ideas are totally impenetrable. Who the Hell is Ludwig Wittgenstein, by Howard Peacock, from which this biography of Wittgenstein was taken, sets out to change this. Peacock writes an engaging, accessible and jargon-free account of who influenced Wittgenstein's thinking, what he meant when he compared language to a box of tools, what his picture theory of meaning is all about, and finally, he delves into an exploration of scepticism and Wittgenstein's hinge proposition. Visit our website at whothehellis.co.uk 
to find out more.